I'm going to apologize ahead of time, folks. I've had a lingering cough and cold, and uh, so I might have a little episode now and then. Um, But if you would, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're uh, starting a new chapter. I'm also going to ask at the same time that you keep your thumb in Matthew chapter 10. A parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10. About 10 years ago, um, I was invited to go on a hiking trip. It was up in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California, way up there in elevation. It was an experience that some would dream of. And um, myself, I would have equally preferred to stay at home. I've never really been an adventurer type of person. You know, I'm much more just a stay back at the farm type of guy, you know. So when people are sharing the pictures of how they scaled Mount Everest, I'm like, well, that's nice, but uh, I just plowed 40 acres, and thank you very much. Um, But this is an event where I was kind of obligated to go. We were going on a camping trip for three days, and uh, remote locations, very high elevations, and uh, so we had to pack pretty heavy. We had to take everything with us. We wore large framed uh, backpacks, aluminum frames going up, and we had our camping supplies and our gear and our tents and our, and our burners and our fuel and our food, and well, it was all just really pointless when you got to the end of it. Uh, they could have just showed me a postcard and I would have been perfectly fine. But I did come to realize on that trip that you don't get very far, you don't survive very long without resources, without supplies. And I was only about an hour into the hike when, uh, when I started reaching for my first power bar. You've got to have stuff with you. And we we're going to a desolate area, so we had to carry all of our provisions with us. We had to be entirely self-sufficient. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus now is sending his missionaries on their first solo trip. They're going out on their own, the twelve. And they were going to execute exactly what they had seen Jesus doing already. Preaching the kingdom of God and healing. As we had previously learned, the Messiah came to offer the kingdom of God to Israel. The mission had not yet turned to Gentiles. It won't for a while. Just as the prophets had foretold, Israel was going to get a genuine shot at this. They were going to get the kingdom offered to them. It was a legitimate offer. All they had to do was believe and receive their king. And Christ would establish his rule on the throne of David and rule over them. So although we've seen a few Gentiles enter the picture thus far in the gospel, uh, even believe, the focus isn't on them. The current mission remains Israel, offering the kingdom to Israel. In fact, even in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 7, when the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus, and, and she kept asking him, we are told, to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. He's talking about the children of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So there was a priority here who was going to get uh, the offer of the kingdom first. Consistent with prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, Israel would be offered the kingdom of God. And, And only after it as an entity, the nation of Israel as a whole, rejects the Messiah, does the focus then later turn primarily to Gentiles. 
the record provided by Matthew adds just enormous theological insight to this first mission trip. Matthew 10, verse 5, we are told, These twelve, Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. That was the purpose of this trip. And Jesus continues by telling them in Matthew, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopards, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Matthew 10 describes the same event we're looking at in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And by comparison, Luke writes this, And he, meaning Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. No supplies. This was going to be a relatively short mission trip. For Matthew emphasizes they were only to seek the lost sheep of Israel in this trip. And the context, we'll see later, seems to limit the sphere of this outreach actually to the region of Galilee. A type of training ground, a short-term mission training ground for the twelve. But contrary to my experience in the Sierra Nevadas, these folks weren't allowed to take anything with. No money, no supplies, not even a loaf of bread. Take nothing with you. They could only take with them what they were wearing. There are a couple of reasons for that. The first observation might, might look on the surface to be a primary point of this passage. It's concluding that in the preaching of the gospel, the twelve would need to learn to exist just solely on what people would give them. By the generosity and hospitality of others, they should only live on that and nothing else. They should have nothing of their own. And this is kind of where some pastors and Christians kind of run off the rails a little bit, and you'll see why in a moment. This passage has been misinterpreted to suggest that missionaries and preachers and those who proclaim the gospel are prohibited from acquiring any type of goods. should never anticipate having to participate or plan for any type of retirement. Uh, all ministers should just perpetually exist on what uh, people offer them along the way. The claim is sometimes suggested uh, that it's even unspiritual to prepare for ministry or for the future. And, and people will say, you know, why don't you just have a little bit of faith? You know, you're a minister of the gospel, you're a missionary, you're a pastor, just have a little bit of faith. That is such an, uh, a complete injustice, folks, not only to this passage of Scripture, um, also to ministers of the gospel. Surely there are scriptural principles um, that we are to be content with very little even just food and covering, if that's all we have. But we mustn't overlook how those commands, such as that, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Philippians 4, other places, in those commands, 
They apply to every Christian to be content, including everyone here. Um, The Apostle Paul had modeled that contentment, that attitude of contentment, while experiencing hunger and enjoying prosperity, both while having abundance and suffering need, both conditions. You need only read Paul's uh, letter of gratitude in Philippians chapter 4 to the people who supplied his need to get a really good sense of which condition he preferred, right? The Apostle Paul preferred being amply supplied. So obviously our passage in Luke 9 doesn't suggest that, that missionaries are to have some kind of martyr complex in regards to having any sort of supplies, nor does it, is it at all a universal call to scarcity, you know, to just go out in, in faith with nothing when, when preaching or sharing the gospel. To reinforce this principle, uh, I need only to turn you to Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, the very same gospel, by the way, where Jesus on the eve of his betrayal arouses the memory of this first missionary journey. He, he calls it back to the disciples' minds. And when preparing them now for his imminent departure, his death and departure, Jesus asked the twelve this in Luke 22, verse 35. When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And listen closely to what Jesus tells them next. But now, notice the contrast, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. With his crucifixion looming, Jesus is now telling the disciples, the twelve, to prepare. You gear up for ministry. You gather supplies for going forward. So Christians can't use the passage in chapter 9 to suggest that God wants all missionaries to go out always unprepared and without any resources. Jesus in chapter 22 completely nullifies that idea entirely. That earlier command of being unprepared, you might choose to do it, I'm not going to recommend it. The Bible doesn't indicate that foolish unpreparedness displays a greater faith or a greater spirituality at all. And it's surely not, with the command at the eve of Christ's crucifixion, it's surely not a standing command for missionaries today. So then, why did Jesus tell the twelve uh, to go out empty-handed on this occasion? The question is... Um, The easy response is just to say so they could learn to trust God, right? And that's partially true. You do need to learn to trust God whatever your circumstance. But I think the more appropriate answer lies in the declared purpose of this short-term mission that we find in Matthew. The mission was to seek out and preach the arrival of God's kingdom to the lost sheep of Israel. That was the purpose of the mission. The twelve are not permitted to go to the Gentiles or even the Samaritans, but on this occasion, only to the lost sheep of Israel. Who then are the lost sheep? 
does the phrase lost sheep suggest every Israelite? No, surely not. For Romans 9 verse 6 assures us that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. So, so not all physical descendants of the patriarch Jacob, who was later named Israel, not all physical descendants of Israel were God's sheep. Surely you only need to take a browse through the Old Testament to, to find that some of the most profane kings, some of the most immoral people in the history of Israel, were descendants, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the command to seek out the lost sheep doesn't imply everyone in Israel, not every Israelite. Instead, Jesus is instructing the twelve to seek the believing remnant of Israel, the lost sheep. The lost sheep need to hear that the Messiah has come, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the emphasis of our passage is, When they hear, when the lost sheep hear, they're going to respond. They're going to respond. The passage, in my estimation, is not nearly as much about the disciples learning how to perpetually survive for the remainder of their ministries without resources. Because we know that condition already is nullified later on by Christ. It's not enforced on the disciples or apostles throughout their ministries. Um, This seems to be much more concerned with informing the lost sheep, the remnant of believing Israel, that the kingdom has come. Everybody needs to know. Uh, Because just like us, they need to hear the preaching of God's word, the preaching of God's message, so that they can respond in faith. They need to hear in these little towns. And, And we know how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? So Christ sends them out. Uh, so this mission is, is like a sweep through the small towns and the villages um, for Christ's lost sheep, the ones who had not yet heard, who need to hear. How will the twelve know when they have encountered lost sheep? Well, they will recognize sheep according to their response. Christ's sheep will receive the disciples, open their homes to them, be generous to them, provide for their every need. That's how a lost sheep will respond when they hear the news that the kingdom has come. Jesus' detailed instructions in Matthew 10 verse 11 say this, Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Luke condenses, condenses these instructions by Jesus simply by stating this, Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. As for those who do not receive you, as you go out from the city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. The conclusion is simply this. Those who are truly sheep will receive you and believe your preaching. They will open their doors to you. They will supply your every need. The believing remnant of Israel 
they generally would have had a good reputation in their communities. They would have taken the law of God, His holy covenant, seriously. Uh, They would heed Leviticus 15, which we read earlier, uh, our scripture reading. They would recognize their obligation to be generous to the sojourner, the person who comes with nothing, to be hospitable to them. They would have had a reputation in their town as being honest and generous and worthy. Jesus says, go to the town first, inquire into the town, who's worthy here? Who's worthy of the kingdom? Who, who, who's upright? Who is just? Who has integrity? And the residents, they should be able to point that out. They should be able to point out the believing remnant. Kind of like Zacharias and Elizabeth. Remember back in Luke chapter 1, when, when we studied them, the parents of John the Baptist? Luke chapter 1 verse 6 says this, They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They would have been generous people. And and when you find those types of people, Jesus says in Matthew 10 verse 8, You know, freely give them what you've received. Jesus implies those who receive you, those who receive your preaching, that indicates that they receive me. For they are my sheep. Why? Because Jesus assures us that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Those who receive the preaching of the kingdom of God, Jesus says, receive me. They are my sheep. And Jesus instructs the twelve in Matthew 10 verse 13. For those, give that house your your blessing. Freely give to them what you've received from me, the delegation of healing and teaching and preaching. As for those who don't receive you, even if they were born Jewish, even if they were an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, they aren't my sheep if they don't receive you. Shake the dust off your feet as you leave that city as a testimony against them are the instructions to those. At the judgment, Christ says that the dust, even the dust on your feet, will provide evidence that my messengers have come to your house. I sent them to you, and you would not receive them. They were there. I sent my messengers to your door. The kingdom was offered to Israel. You didn't believe my messengers. You wouldn't receive them. And in Matthew 10, verse 15, Jesus says, In the day of judgment... It will be more tolerable for residents of Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who have rejected my messengers. Just just think about that for a minute. Sodom and Gomorrah were the poster children of God's fury against sin in the Old Testament as he rained down fire and brimstone in judgment against, against their wicked sexual immorality. And at the final judgment, the people who lived in those cities, they aren't going to fare well. They aren't going to fare well. Um, But the person who rejects the message of Christ will suffer even greater than they. For Sodom reviled angelic majesties, but these revile the messengers of the Holy Son of God. To hear the message of Christ and then reject it 
is an even greater sin than Sodom. So it brings greater judgment. Luke 12 verse 47 indicates, He who knows the Father's will, but did not act in accord with it, will be beaten severely. According to that passage, it is of the highest consequence to hear the preaching of Christ, the preaching of His kingdom, and then to resist and reject it. And, And this is where You've probably run into cynics if you've been a Christian for a while and we talk about needing to take the gospel to the world, to foreign lands, to every tribe, to every, to every nation in order to share the gospel. Um, you'll hear uh, people, cynics, say, yeah, you know, Jesus can't be the only way. Can't be. You know, what about the poor savage in the jungle? What about him who, who's never gotten to hear the good news about Jesus? How could he possibly condemn be condemned. And I'm like, folks, I would be more concerned about you in America who has heard the message, usually repeatedly, because your judgment is going to be greater than the pagan in the jungle. You need to worry about yourself, not worry so much about them. As Christians, we're going to do our best to take the gospel to them. So that they can be saved. But it's a far greater condemnation uh, to reject Jesus than being a pagan in the jungle or even to be a citizen of Sodom. Matthew 10.15 implies the greatest sin is hearing the message of the kingdom. The message of Christ and rejecting Him as Savior. That would be unpardonable to not receive Christ as Savior. Separating the sheep from the goats is their response to the preaching of God's kingdom. Luke 9, verse 6 tells us the disciples began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Mark 6, verse 12 states that they were also preaching that all men should repent. And then Matthew 10, verse 7 says they proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, taken all together, these three three gospels, what we call the synoptic gospels, taken together... This is precisely the same message that John the Baptist had been preaching, and Jesus as well. Taking the same message out to Israel. That repent, believe the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, so it isn't a wonder of why many were speculating about John the Baptist. The message was the same. Uh, many were speculating he had been risen. When they're talking about who is it now that is preaching... And all this preaching activity causes quite a stir in Galilee. And in verse 7 we're told that Herod the Tetrarch, Herod now had heard of all that was happening. He was, a, he was the Tetrarch or the ruler over the region of Galilee. That's where this mission is going on at this point. And Herod was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? The scripture says that Herod kept trying to see Jesus. He wanted to see him. Herod hears all kinds of rumors about the commotion in his district. He knows he beheaded John. He knows he did that. And verse 9 says that he desperately wants to meet this Jesus. 
That's not going to happen until the day of the crucifixion. We'll look at that later, where eventually Herod will get to meet the Christ face to face. Um, but even Herod asks, is like, who is this man about whom I hear such things? And I'm not even going to answer that today because the Apostle Peter is going to answer that for us in a couple of weeks in verse 20. But this question is, who is this person we're hearing about? Just remember, you know, there wasn't any photography back then. They didn't have audio recordings. They weren't circulating, you know, videos and, and, and texts and other things like that. Um, Jesus and his disciples, they led very itinerant ministries. They, 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 they went where they went. My impression is they didn't even um, plan locations ahead of time. It's not like they sent flyers ahead and, and post these to the synagogue door before we get there, you know, and get all the people. There, there wasn't a promotional wing of the disciples, you know. Jesus went, and, and where they went, they shared the kingdom of God, a lot like us. Throughout our day, throughout our week, we go, we share. We tell others about Christ. Um, wasn't very orchestrated, the ministry. It was very itinerant. But unless you ran across Jesus somewhere, unless you happened across him, you would have no idea what he looked like. No idea. Whatsoever. There were no photo IDs. So, so remember when we looked to Peter's confession in a couple weeks, there were a lot of rumors spread about the identity of this person that he was even, even John the Baptist raised from the dead. Who is this guy? Well, there weren't any identification. Unless you knew them and saw them side by side, you wouldn't know who was who. Their pictures weren't in the paper. In verse 10, after preaching to all the villages and the twelve, uh, the twelve then returned to give an account to Jesus. Could be a complete sermon on that. Uh, and they withdraw with him to, remote, to a remote location called Bethsaida. And uh, this will become the location where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And we'll be in that passage next week. Um, But before we depart today, we have to look at what are we supposed to glean from this passage? What what are we, the Christians today, supposed to gather from this? You know, other, other than the enormous cost of rejecting Christ as Savior, is there anything practical, really grassroots practical for us? And I would say there surely is. Since we earlier dispelled the myth, dispelled the myth, excuse me, that uh, this passage would be intended to teach missionaries and preachers just to go out unprepared in faith, we, we dispelled that. You're not to go out living hand to mouth. That, that's such a poor interpretation considering Luke chapter 22. We also know it's poor because later Luke says the laborer is worthy of his wages. The Apostle Paul says, do not muzzle the ox as he's treading out the grain. 1 Corinthians 9.14 insists those who preach the gospel are to make their living from the gospel. And Paul commands churches in 1 Timothy 5.17 that the pastor who works hard at preaching and teaching is to be considered worthy of double honor. So that that just suggests uh, fairly compensated when you get into that context. Um, And though living hand to mouth could become a reality, it could. It's never a command. It's, it's not the biblical command. Actually, the prevailing command, the superseding command from Jesus in chapter 22 is to go out with the gospel first making yourself well prepared. 
Get your reserves together. Get your act together. And observing the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in harmony, the purpose of this passage was how to identify Christ's lost sheep. How you would know who are the lost sheep. Genuine sheep will support their shepherd's mission of proclaiming the kingdom. Christ's sheep will recognize the kingdom work. They'll respond to the kingdom work. They'll provide for the kingdom work. This is how the disciples would have known that they encountered one of the lost sheep. Sheep will recognize gospel proclamation when they hear it. Jesus says in John 10, 27 again, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So obviously what Jesus is suggesting is that his sheep will hear his voice, Christ's voice, through the faithful preaching of his disciples. Through his messengers. And and that perpetually goes on through the age of the church. Sheep will recognize Christ's voice through faithful preaching. But sheep will not only recognize when they hear, they will respond. Sheep don't just hear and then forget the shepherd's voice. They don't just listen to increase um, intellectual knowledge and then just disappear again. Christ's sheep will embrace and engage faithful ministry they would tell those disciples you know you can stay at my house Uh, they who are worthy find out in the town who is worthy those who are worthy would be calling other people in the town together whom they know to hear the preaching they would be worthy servants of god they would take their covenants serious their covenant with god seriously um in effect, they'll become partners in ministry. They'll, they'll underwrite the kingdom work, is what they'll end up doing. Remember, the disciples, when Jesus asked them later, said, we didn't lack anything. But not only will sheep recognize the shepherd's voice and respond through action, they will support the cause. Jesus asked the twelve in Luke 22, verse 35, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. The lost sheep once found gave generously to the twelve's ministry every need that they had. They considered the mission of preaching the kingdom of God a mission that was worthy, was worthy of their provision. They they not only wanted everyone in their town to have a chance to hear the kingdom preached, they wanted everybody in the next town to hear the kingdom preached. So so they would respond to the twelve by saying things like, uh, you mean you're leaving from here? Where are you going next? What are you going to do there? Same thing that you did here? You're going to be seeking lost sheep where you're going. You're going to be seeking them out. Can I make you a sandwich? You know, can I pack you some supplies, your sandals in good shape? Can I take care of those sandals, sandals for you? How about the keys into my Lexus? Would you like the keys to my Lexus? They fulfilled every need that the preachers of the kingdom had. In contrast, Matthew 10 verse 14 says, Anyone who did not receive the disciples nor heed their teaching was not worthy. They weren't worthy of the kingdom of God. They gave no provision. For them, you just shake the dust off your feet and leave them to God. 
The passage does not teach missionaries to just have faith and go out unprepared. That's not the purpose at all. Um, Instead, it illustrates how God's sheep respond to kingdom proclamation. And, And it remains as true today as it was then. Genuine sheep recognize Christ's voice as it is proclaimed through faithful ministry. Those same sheep respond. You know, Gerald and I hear it all the time. What can I do? How many boxes of soda do you need for VBS? Juice, whatever it is. Where can I get involved? Can I clean the bathroom? Can I, can I work, you know, monitor the parking lot during VBS? Any people all the time, the sheep are wanting to further the preaching of the kingdom of God. Because sheep want to participate in kingdom work. They want to get involved with their substance when they see a ministry worthy of provision. You want, you want a summary statement? Just of this passage in my, own, in my own opinion, my own humble opinion. The ministry of the twelve lacked nothing. Sheep support kingdom proclamation. Goats don't. There will always be people who say, you know, we shouldn't have to give any money for missionaries or preachers. You know, if they just had a little bit of faith, they could just go out and God will take care of them along the way. You know, just look at Paul. He made tents. He, he even refused money from Corinth. Of course he refused money from Corinth. He refused money from them because they were carnal. He didn't want to be accused of, of coveting their money. You know, you guys know Corinth is never upheld as the model church, right? Immorality, disunity, disharmony, you know, greed, lawsuits. Uh, their worship services were in disarray. No order to anything. Corinth is not the model church by any means. Um, the reason people use passages like Luke 9 as an excuse to not give generously is because they don't want to give generously. They don't want to support the kingdom work. Um, but Paul also told Corinth this, those who preach the gospel are to make their living by the gospel. I, I personally don't think that God calls many uh, missionaries and preachers of the gospel who are wealthy. I didn't say any. I said I don't think many. Um, I actually can't imagine being called to a gospel ministry where I didn't have to have anyone else involved. That I didn't need the help and the assistance of the other sheep to get the job done. I I, I wouldn't want anything to do with that type of ministry. A faithful minister or missionary ought to yearn for the other sheep to get involved in the work and embrace uh, their share of that ministry. The model church... For mission support is Philippi, not Corinth, Philippi. Paul commended them in Philippians 4, verses 15 to 19. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. It's describing the beginning of the ministry. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. Kingdom profit, eternal profit. <clears throat> Paul says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance 
I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God, Paul says, will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Jesus Christ. Philippi is the model church for missions. Supporting kingdom work. Uh, The Philippians were generous. They were well-pleasing to God. And when they got involved, Paul lacked nothing. Amply supplied. This is very important. Folks, we should want our missionaries, at least those who we have, have embraced as having same doctrine and we've, we've called them our own because we know them, um, estimated to be faithful in kingdom work. Uh, we want them to suffer the condition of being amply supplied. Yeah, make them suffer in that. That is a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice to God. You know, their backpacks, when they go out, when they start up the switchbacks and start turning corners and going out, oh, they ought to be loaded heavy from us. We ought to keep their backpacks full. Our preachers and missionaries ought to be well-trained. They ought to be well-prepared, amply supplied. They are worthy of our provision. Whether it is a Bible college, a mission training institute, a seminary, whatever it is, you want them to be prepared when they land a boots on the ground for their mission. You want them to flourish. <coughs> Ministers of the gospel need to have theological training. They need mission field preparedness and financial underwriting. Jesus is teaching these apostles this all right now through all these lessons. We have a number of former missionaries here in our presence, short-term, long-term, ask them if it's acceptable to go out unprepared. No. No. I was in the field, some of you know, about five years. And that was with a domestic ministry, domestic mission. Still hard duty. Hard duty. The, the, the spiritual battle, the, the fatigue, can sometimes just be overwhelming. And I had a Walmart just down the road. The notion of just heading overseas unprepared, it's a complete farce. It's a farce. takes Luke chapter 9 uh, completely for something other than what it is. People who suggest that have no idea the hardships missionaries endure, including spiritual rejection, loneliness, and pain. If not adequately prepared for that, spiritually, intellectually, theologically prepared for what they're going to face, they'll, they'll wash out quickly. They'll wash out very quickly. Um, our church planning missionaries in Italy are with TEAM, the organization TEAM, the uh, Evangelical Alliance Mission. Gene and Susan Coleman, many of you have met them here uh, when they've come back. They won't entertain long-term missions uh, for people not appropriately trained, fully prepared properly endorsed by their home-sending church, their own people. Uh, uh, that means a home church that recognizes the giftedness, the preparedness, and is willing to get on board with them, lay hands on them, send them out as their very own, and that usually includes a long period of process, uh, significant process of training. Um, even the apostles spent a significant amount of time in preparation they were watching, they were learning from the master. 
And they still spent a very long period of time learning this stuff before they went on their first short-term mission trip that we see here. I understand, as I've talked to others, many long-term missionaries start out as short-term missions. Isn't that right, Chuck? Here you got that, the 12. The 12, their first mission is a short-term mission. Eventually, they'll get the long-term mission. Um, Next week, we will see them return. They'll give a report to Jesus. We'll watch now as they continue to to go into advanced training for ministry. Let's pray.